1: You are listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast podcast, Best Bits, from Tuesday, January the 23rd. Bit of a focus on all things eSport and the investment into e gaming and eSports has been significant in recent years and continues to be, uh, not just here in the UAE, but the region as a whole. Klaus Kajetsky, uh, the founder of Yala eSports, was kind enough to join us uh, in the studio a little earlier on uh, to talk about the latest investment into True Gamers, a UAE-based operation, Uh, of e-sports clubs that signed uh, a massive deal at the moment open centres across Saudi Arabia. So uh, what does this mean, the significance? We found out from Klaus. Uh, We also took some legal advice. James Berry of James Berry Associates, joining us live in studio. He's the managing partner of James Berry and Associates Legal Partners. He came in to explain a little bit more to us about this new ruling uh, that a federal ministry has been given the power to behave as a court of law. A new law being brought in uh, from the beginning of this year, allowing the uh, MOHRE to make decisions... Uh, having the force of law, giving them the force of law, which previously uh, could only be made by the courts themselves. Really interesting and significant move here for the MOHRE. What does that mean for businesses here in the region? Um, And uh, a few details came from James uh, on this one. Stephen Anderson, also kind enough to join us in studio. Who he? He's the partner, strategy markets leader at PwC, their 27th Uh, And you'll see EO's report has hit the shelves. Uh, it paints, obviously, a global picture of what CEO CEO sentiment, if you like, around the world. Fair to say that um, CEOs here in the region more optimistic than CEOs might be in other parts of the world. Uh, that's not the only finding from the report, as Stephen explained. Plus, uh, what was discussed around the table, myself, Rich and Brandy talking gold prices at the moment. Uh, Japan's uh, currency, seeing their rates uh, increase at the end of last week and continue in that good form over the weekend into it brand new week as well and we're over to the united states as well to get uh, more on that ad story that dropped for us uh, over the course of the last few days ad board confirming that they would boost uh, their decarbonization projects little bit vague the wording on this one so we asked dr jim crane over in the states to help us out with this one that's all right here on the bite size business breakfast podcast <laughs>
2: If you're an investor in gold, as many people here in Dubai are, now might be a good time to buy. And that's because the Swiss bank UBS says the gold price could rise by 10% this year, currently just above 2000 bucks an ounce. They said it could rise to 2250 Here's Khatija Hack, Chief Economist at Emirates MBD.
3: Gold tends to benefit as interest rates fall, and the market is already pricing in more than five quarter-point rate cuts by the end of this year. This has contributed to the rally that we saw in gold since October last year, We expect the gold price to hold close to around $2,000 a troy ounce for most of this year.
2: So rising interest rates across the globe, is, or rather falling interest rates across the globe, is what we're expecting Uh, this year. We're expecting the Fed to cut rates and the European Central Bank, among others. Within the past hour, we've heard from the Bank of Japan. They haven't got rates to cut. Even before this morning, they were ultra-loose at 0.1%, and they have kept rates on hold in negative territory. So we asked Khatija, why has the Bank of Japan kept interest rates on hold for the past couple of years in negative territory, while others, like the Fed and the ECB, have been raising them to 4 or 5%. Here's what Khatija had to say.
3: Deflation has been the perennial challenge for the Bank of Japan over the last couple of decades. And even though inflation did accelerate coming out of the pandemic, it has already started to slow and uh, fell back to 2.6% in December. The main concern for policymakers is that the post-pandemic inflation in Japan was due to supply-side issues and higher energy prices rather than domestic demand. And they're concerned that it won't be sustained. What they're looking for really is wage growth um, and we haven't seen real wages in Japan rise even as they've risen elsewhere over the last 12 months. So the Bank of Japan will be watching the spring wage negotiations quite closely um, as well as other indications that consumer demand is holding up before they start to normalise monetary policy. Most analysts are expecting that uh, in the second quarter of 2024.
2: Next week, we've got a Federal Reserve meeting, first one of the year. They're going to decide on interest rates. Even the most dovish analyst doesn't expect the Fed to cut rates next week. So they're going to stay just above 5% in both the United States and the UAE. Right, been talking gold this morning. Brandi Scott also been talking energy and hydrocarbons because we've got a new green initiative from Adnoc. yeah?
4: Yeah, we do indeed. So Adnoc more than doubling the amount of money that it is going to be putting into carbon management strategies. Um, It was going to put in about $15 billion. That has now um, risen to 23 over the next five years or so. We've been speaking to one energy expert from Houston this morning who knows this part of the world exceptionally well. Um, Dr. Jim Crane is now an energy and geopolitics research fellow um, at Rice University in Houston. And we asked him about some of the the arguments for and against some of the areas that that money could be spent by carbon management. He's guessing that they may mean carbon capture and storage. Still waiting for a lot of detail on that one. It's something that is not without its critics, as we heard during cop some people say that it doesn't actually stop anyone producing fossil fuels so it kicks the can down the road other people saying it actually diverts from you know moving on with with new technologies um others saying no it's part of the transition so i asked dr jim this morning where do you sit with that
5: or you know mckinsey a recent report just came out saying that you know carbon capture is going to have to ramp up 120 fold beyond what we're doing today to meet net zero commitments by 2050. I mean, can you imagine scaling something up that's so expensive and complex in that, you know, to, to that scale? I mean, it's just it's not going to happen. So I think it can help around the margins. You know, and and actually the UAE is a great place to do it. I mean, you know, the UAE's got um it's got its emissions and clustered together in these industrial zones like in Jebel Ali. Uh, And you've got great storage underground, practically underneath, uh, you know, where the emissions are taking place. So if there was a good locale, good argument uh, for carbon capture, the UAE would would be a great place to do it. So, um, you know, there is that.
4: But at the same time as they're investing in carbon management, um, Adnock is also looking to increase um, the amount of oil that it generates up to 5 million barrels a day by 2027 and investing in that as well. So uh, we said to Dr. Jim, with both of those things going on at the same time, what do you think Adnock is going to look like in five years' time?
5: Well, hopefully they're going to look like a diversified energy company that's uh you know that's looking towards the end of of, of the oil sector, and you know the sort of a you know de- plateau and decline of oil demand, and has got some ready replacements to it. I mean, you know the UAE and you know Dubai as well. I mean, Dubai is the first successful post-oil economy in the Middle East. So um, you know the UAE has been pathbreaking uh, in this area for for decades now, and you know I I would expect uh, you know Adnoc to be on that same path. Uh, you know, we, Dubai can do it. Um, you know, the, the you know, UAE's oil company can do it. Jim
4: Crane is an energy and politics, a geopolitics research fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute, speaking to us this morning from Houston, Texas, also uh, the author of several books on this region where he has spent uh, a considerable part of his career as well being AFP's Man in the Gulf.
0: This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on dubaii1038.com.
1: PwC have published their 27th annual CEO survey yeah. <laughs> Are capturing insights, global insights from across the world. Over 105 countries, over 4,700 executives uh, were interviewed for this one. And it makes for some interesting reading, especially when it comes to Middle Eastern perspectives compared to other parts of the world. CEOs here are optimistic about revenue growth, but almost half of CEOs don't believe their business will be economically viable a decade from now if they don't transform in the face of tech dis- Disruption And other influences. Let's get some more insight into the insights here from partner, strategy, markets leader at PwC, Stephen Anderson. Stephen, lovely to see you. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Tom. Great to be here. So let's start with an overall, if we can. Um, pessimistic outlook, optimistic outlook. How do you read it?
6: Uh, very optimistic. I think there are two big themes uh, coming through was optimism. Obviously resilience in the face of what's going on around the region uh, and then brought more broadly a theme around reinvention
1: let's talk about the optimism as well i mean is that across the board one thing i love about this one is obviously very much of a sort of global outlook as yeah. well so and we know you know we're not immune to the fact that some certain economies around the world struggling more than others a lot of focus on the gcc at the moment is there more optimism here than there might be in other parts of the world absolutely tom uh, we're a clear outlier in the global report
6: so it's like 77 percent uh, of our ceos uh, see regional growth being pretty strong Uh, That compares to just 44% uh, globally. Uh, And actually, within our survey, 81% in the GCC uh, were very confident about growth. Uh, And that's translating into revenue expectations. So about 66% are expecting revenue growth and 65% are looking to add to uh, headcount this year. So uh, uh, pretty confident CEOs out there.
1: And yet that comes with... uh, you know, few. Uh, the, the, there are obviously concerns in the regions. There are globally yep. at the moment as well. What are the sort of main concerns weighing on CEOs' minds here at the beginning of the year? So the big things that they picked out were sort of three or four areas. Um, the obvious one being geopolitics,
6: uh, with everything happening around uh, the region and more broadly. Uh, big, big focus on inflation, uh, probably less so than global CEOs. Uh, we've had a a pretty good macroeconomic uh, picture here in the region, so inflation probably less so, uh, but noticeably a bit more concern around cyber attacks. So mm. uh, that featured pretty heavily, uh, big concern about cyber.
1: So resilience and optimism is good, but the other R I want to just pick you up on, you mentioned it there, this, this idea of reinvention as well. I mean, how much of that is down to tech and the sort of advancements in tech?
6: Quite a big portion of it, Tom. I think our region is going through this what I call massive and fast transformation. So we're digitising, we're decarbonizing, we're localising, we're privatising uh, and we're modernising. Uh, and given all of that happening in the transformation of the region, the, the CEOs are, are very much responding to that and saying, actually, we need to reinvent. You're right, nearly 50% said my business model uh, will not be viable in 10 years' time if I continue down this path. Uh, and within that, there's probably a couple of things that they're picking out. Uh, One is around tech transformation, so about three quarters said tech transformation is absolutely a priority Uh, and over 50% are sort of diversifying their products and services.
1: And talking of tech, we can't mention tech without mentioning our good friend Gen AI at the moment. Show me a report anywhere in the world <laughs> that doesn't mention uh, the word Gen AI. How much, how much sleep are CEOs losing when it comes to Gen AI, Gen AI these days? Quite a bit, and I think our CEOs are probably uh, there's sort of uh, there's a balance here because our CEOs were
6: clearly more. Uh, confident in the impact of, of Gen AI coming out of the report. So it's like 77% said it's going to change the way we create value, deliver value, capture value uh, over the next three years. That was well ahead of global CEOs. Uh, 77% said it would make things more efficient. Uh, 66% said it's going to drive better revenue. And you're actually seeing within their tech strategies that over half of our CEOs said, actually, we are already changing our tech strategy. So uh, everything you're seeing going on in the UAE, I think The Economist said the UAE was the third most important country in the world. Uh, From an AI perspective, things we're seeing down in Abu Dhabi with TII and G42, uh, things like the Falcon model, the Jace model. Uh, the UAE is pretty much at the forefront of all of this, and CEOs are following.
1: It's interesting you mention that because it goes back to the previous point about reinvention as well. Is is, is generative AI and the conversation? A lot of people will put it into sort of negative terms, but yeah. as you say, there, you know, major companies already putting plans in chain in place to sort of address this issue at the moment. So we can take the positives out of yep. Gen.ai at the moment as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think this region, as came
6: through in the CEO survey, are seeing that in a more positive light. Maybe we don't have the same workforce pressures as other parts of the world. Uh, maybe our ability to reinvent, uh, we're in a stronger position. And therefore CEOs are being, and I'm sort of seeing that with my CEOs that I'm working with, they're very much trying to get on the front foot, mm. following the government's lead.
1: Uh, COP28, obviously one of the highlights of last year, shining a light on climate change the world over again. How much of that, how much with regards to the, the, the effects of climate change, is that impacting on CEOs?
6: So a, a tale of two halves, I think, in, in the survey. I was a bit disappointed that only about 15 percent of CEOs in the region saw this as a major, major issue. Uh, that said, only 12 percent globally did. So we're not an outlier. Uh, That said, 38% said, actually, this is going to drive some change and lead to some transformation. Uh, About 66% said, actually, we're going to look at energy efficiency and drive some energy efficiency. Uh, And again, about half of CEOs were saying, how do we change some of our product set. Uh, to entice more customers. So I think we are going to see some change. The survey happened just before COP. Mm. Um, So I'm kind of hopeful we were all at COP. We saw what happened there. I think the UAE did an amazing job with the UAE consensus. And perhaps when we come back next year, uh, we'll see uh, even more uh, change happening in that regard.
1: We can't wait for the 28th edition of the annual CEO <laughs> okay. survey. I'm sure planning is afoot for that already at the moment. Listen, we're out of time on this occasion. Uh, but Stephen, always good to see you, especially at the beginning of a brand new year as well. Thanks very so much indeed for your time. And thanks very much indeed for the survey as well. Thanks, Tom. Great Stephen to Anderson is partner, strategy markets leader at PwC.
2: Love the comments we're getting in today. Abdul Salam writes in, this one made me chuckle. What's inside a CEO's head? A bunch of slides from PwC, McKinsey, EY and Company. Abdul <laughs> Salam, thank you.
0: Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite sized Business Breakfast.
2: Let's talk about the economics of video games now because the UAE video game company, True Gamers, has signed a near 200 million dirham deal. It's going to open 150 gaming centres across the kingdom of Saudi Arabia kids are going to be playing games like this Fortnite.
1: siphon comes through it's now a one-on-one and two left wins the game
2: your 2023 global champions even miro and
5: cooper and who would have thought it would have been a million dollar coin
2: flip It's much more than a million dollar business, a multi-billion dollar business joining us in the studio to give us some perspective now. is one of our favorite video game experts. He is the founder of Yala Esports here in Dubai, Klaus Kudetsky. Klaus, good morning. Thanks for being with us.
7: Hello, and always a pleasure to be here talking gaming and esports.
2: So first of all, your reaction to this deal, a UAE company, 200 million dirham deal in Saudi Arabia. We're used to Saudi Arabia doing deals with the big global players like Nintendo, but they've gone local.
7: Yeah, I mean, look, um, I think they have done the the, the big things. Now, now we want to go grassroots. So, so this is the the step to the right direction. You get a lot of people. I mean, you're a lot of places where the gamers can go and take the let's say first step on their career.
2: Okay, so as I understand it, and and for people of my generation, the language is difficult for video gaming. So, but let's try. They're opening a hundred and fifty video gaming centers across saudi arabia riyadh this is what my generation would maybe have called an arcade with video games how accurate is that analogy
7: yeah i mean look i've I've heard everything it can be a cyber cafe net cafe internet cafe basically it's a venue with pcs you know and communities can come together play games practice uh have tournaments so uh you know it's it's a venue at the end of the day for gamers
2: but why do they need a venue because surely this is the kind of thing that people play on home you know the classic video gamers playing call of duty or whatever it may be in their bedroom against people in japan in wyoming wherever it may be
7: i, I love that question actually so back in the days in finland uh, we 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 did the, the The culture of net cafes basically died out, you know, 20, 30 years ago. When I moved to Dubai and the Middle East, it's very much still here. People like to go out and play together with their friends. After the game, you have a burger or you get that whole kind of, you know, community and togetherness vibe. It's social at the end of the day. What Saudi Arabia is doing is quite
2: extraordinary. Now, this is a relatively small deal. I mean, 200 million dirham sounds like a lot to me, but Bloomberg had a headline just last year talking about the bigger picture strategy for gaming in Saudi Arabia. Bloomberg puts a $38 billion price tag on that, on what Saudi Arabia is doing with video games. They've hired a guy to run the the PIF subsidiary that does video games. It's called Savvy Games, and he used to work at Activision, Microsoft, EA, all the big names. They've bought stakes in many of the big names. The biggest shareholder in Nintendo, almost 10%. Uh, I could go on. Tencent as well. Activision before Microsoft bought it. Why is Saudi Arabia investing so much? I mean, even for Saudi, $38 billion is a lot of money, Klaus.
7: Well, look how I see it. Uh, no matter how much money they, they put in, they're not going to become the next world champions in ice hockey. But if they play the gaming card right, there is you know, a, a, a chance that they can really become the next hub. And that goes not only for Saudi Arabia, but even the wider Middle East. Well, let's talk about eSports then, because that's
2: not all of it, but it's part of it. Social gamers playing games on their own, that's fine. It's good. But what we're talking about now is eSports, this competitive gaming. The soundbite we heard a couple of moments ago was from the World Championship of Fortnite just a few months ago. A couple of young kids, Miro and Cooper, won a million dollars for winning that world championship. This is competitive. And that's what you do at Yala eSports, isn't it? You put together teams to compete in these competitions. You even stage some competition competitions how do the economics of that stack up
7: yeah so i mean you know first we need to have these places like true gamers where the grassroots can you know start the player can take their first step but at the end of the day they need to then come to the stadium and that's what yellow esports is doing we are then putting now together the basically the tournaments the circuits where these players can come and and compete and show their skills and that's then uh, a competition between the global best teams and then the local heroes. It's called Compass and that will come in uh, June this year.
2: Okay, so that's that's uh, an event that you are putting together uh, as Yala Esports. What's the business model for that? With a business breakfast, people are driving to work. We can understand how NVIDIA makes money out of this, selling the, the microchips that power these gaming consoles. We understand how the game
7: developers make money. But how do you make money out of this? So that's that's a great question. Actually, we always wanted to do tournaments locally, kind of as an export but we never really cracked the business model. Now this year or last year, actually, we partnered with IMG, a global media rights holder, and we have already sold now for this IP over a million dollars worth of media rights globally. So there is, you know, media rights broadcast in 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 China, in Russia, in Brazil, in Europe, and and that is kind of like the Olympics, you know, localized media rights of a big tournament that is relevant enough for the global scale. And that's the one part of it. Then you have your sponsorships and brand deals and I mean, you know, if a brand doesn't have a gaming strategy these days, it's like what you—it's like saying you don't have a TV strategy twenty years ago or, or whenever TVs came. I mean, not twenty. So, maybe 15.
2: What, if you're selling to that demographic and it's a bit dem- big demographic, you know, if you're a if you're a Coca-Cola or a Pepsi, you need to have a, a video game marketing strategy. If you're a Nike or an Adidas, you need one, a, a, and so on. And they are spending money that they're getting, uh, what what our sales team would call share of wallet in terms of marketing spend, right? The video games industry is getting that.
7: Yeah, I mean, look, uh, if if there is a CMO listening and they kind of stop like, oh, wait, we don't have a gaming strategy, I really think that, you know, you should reconsider why. There are a few brands, you know, I might be biased, there are a few brands that maybe don't need a gaming strategy, but nine out of 10 brands need a gaming strategy. I mean, it's like TikTok and gaming, that's where the, the next generation is spending their time. If you're not relevant there, then you're probably missing out. Your prize pool for this event later on this year is $450,000, half a
2: million dollars. You have to spend that kind of big bucks to get... The world? Do you get the region's best gamers for that or do you get the world's best gamers for that?
7: No, no, no. This will be the world's best gamers. So we have 12 teams out of which 11 are basically the top of the world. Uh, top 20 teams, most in top 10. But then we do have one kind of regional champion because at the end of the day, in, in the Middle East, we do a lot of this kind of import. We bring the big circuit here. We decided to do it kind of the other way around. So build something relevant from here and export it to the world. What about developing the next games that people are going to be playing? We know
2: Fortnite, Call of Duty, very popular for eSports. We know your home country, Finland, punches well above its weight in terms of game development. Uh, we know Angry Birds came from your part of the world, didn't it? And, and many others as well. Saudi Arabia wants to build its own games, maybe even native Arabic language content. The UAE would like to do so as well. We've got 30 seconds left. Where do we stand on homegrown game development?
7: So I was just yesterday in a meeting with the Dubai Gaming Group, you know, set in motion by the executive office, uh, great people there. And that was one of the topics that we discussed. What is the infrastructure? What needs to be put in place to attract publishers? And, and the main thing is talent. So we need to attract and, and get the talent to move here so that then they can develop the games. But we have good plans with, uh, with Dubai and the wider Middle East to make that reality
2: well i've got a couple of potential customers age 13 and 10 who would say <laughs> this idea is sick <laughs> i believe that's how the kids talk um fifth to the ninth of june your event is happening but so much happening in the world of video games appreciate your time this morning thanks for joining us klaus Krajewski is the founder of yalla
0: esports appreciate you joining us today Thank you so much. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast.
4: And looking at one of our top stories, a new decree means that the Ministry of Human Resources and Emeritisation can now act as a court of law. What does that mean for employees and employers? Very pleased to be joined by James Berry, Managing Partner of James Berry and Associate Legal Partners. Jim, it's lovely to see you. Good morning. Nice
8: to see you, Brandy. All so
4: what exactly is this going to allow the MOHRE to do?
8: Um, Something more than it had before. Uh, Previously, and for many years, if you had a labor dispute, it would, whatever size, it would go to the, first of all, to the Ministry of Human Resources and Emiratization for a mediation attempt. If that failed, uh, then within 14 days, the matter would be referred to the courts. Um, and, And that's still the case. Now, the change is that if the dispute, the amount in dispute is 50,000 or less dirhams or if there was a mediated solution that one or other party didn't abide by, in each of those cases, the ministry can actually issue a decision which is equivalent to the decision of a lower court, the court of first instance, in the sense that you can appeal it, but if you don't appeal it, it's final. And you, you've got 15 days to appeal um, if you don't think the solution is, is, is right, um, and if you don't it's final. So, um, in that sense, a decision of the ministry can be binding on the parties, whereas before all it could do was to refer the matter to the court. But it will still do that for the bigger cases.
4: For these smaller cases, is the MOHRE actually hearing them in like a court case, or is it just going to be deciding on paperwork?
8: Well, that, that's a uh, thing that nobody knows yet. Uh, the effective date of this uh, Decree uh, Number Twenty of last year uh, announced that there would be implementing regulations, and we haven't seen those yet. And one or two of the questions we have is the very one you put, which is: um, Is this a thing where lawyers play a part? Is is the judiciary or is is the the deciding entity tribunal? Is, is it going to have a legally trained personnel or a judge? Uh, Will there be written pleadings or is it just going to be on the day? Uh, We we should hear the answer to that really soon now.
4: What kind of cases would normally fall under that 50,000 dirham threshold?
8: It could be cases uh, as to the calculation of of end-of-service gratuity or um, leave that wasn't taken or was taken. Small matters, small matters. It's it's worth remembering that these cases uh, have always gone to the lower court, and uh, there's no court fees if the matter is small, under 100000 And so I I guess that they're moving these cases to one side because there's so many of them. And hopefully those cases will be sorted out within the ministry, and there's any serious uh, objection that would go straight to the Court of Appeal. And then within 15 days of that happening, the decision is final, matter is resolved one way or the other.
4: Okay, well, I understand that we're still waiting to hear exactly how the nuts and bolts of it are going to work. But what do you think it could mean for claimants in cost and time and hassle?
8: It may mean nothing in cost, particularly if there's no um, lawyers in the room. Uh, It would be just uh, the civil servants who are well-versed in these kind of disputes from the mediation point of view. Um, I think it will mean for employers who could have expected in the past that these small cases would just fizzle out. Um, That may not happen.
4: Okay, so with the employees, if they don't need a lawyer, does that mean this is potentially a money saving?
8: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And also time saver because everything is, is fast track.
4: But for the employers who might have been hoping that the cost and the hassle and and the fear of getting you know legal representation and going through the court system might put people off pursuing them,
8: yes, I think that's certainly true. I think for the for the employee, uh, it's always been a daunting prospect to actually go to a court, um, uh, even if there's no court fees involved. But um, maybe the 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 environment that they've created with this decree law will be one that's more favourable uh, for the employee in the sense that the employee will not be so tense and nervous about going to a court.
4: Could we therefore see the number of cases that are pursued increase as a result of this?
8: I think we will, yeah. I think so, yeah.
4: What are we seeing at the moment? What are you you hearing and seeing at the moment in terms of the, the number of cases that are out there?
8: Uh, cases like these... Um, in particular cases of under 50,000 or up to 50,000. Those kind of cases are the most common by far. And I think the effect on the lower court will be to uh, just remove that that whole stream of small cases uh, so that the backlog uh, is less intense. Uh, That'll be good for the courts in general.
4: Have the numbers been rising? Has the population been rising?
8: Yes, yeah. Uh, I think uh, for these kind of cases given the, the fact that we must have now five times the companies that we had five years ago, the, the trend has to be up. And, and I think the way Dubai is going, there are so many licenses being issued for fresh businesses, SME small ones, big ones, every single day, we're gonna see a big increase. And maybe that's why this step has been taken now to, um, to move the, the stream of such cases to one side so that the the courts can carry on with the other work they do.
4: But at the same time, we've had a lot more safeguards put in place, you know, where gratuities have to be held in escrow, Mm. um, where licences can be suspended if if people aren't, or the ability to hire if people aren't paying. How are companies still managing to end up in court for this?
8: Uh, Difficult to say, actually, because each company has a different motive. Uh, You're absolutely right that the law is a lot clearer on on how you calculate end-of-service benefit. Therefore, um, whether it's a combination of, um, if it's short service and therefore no gratuity, or if it's longer service with gratuity, uh, days of leave taken, not taken, uh, uh, rate of pay on the last day, all these things, it is actually quite easy to calculate. So um, it would probably, one of the motivations would be that the company just hasn't got the time to deal with it and hopes that the member staff will simply go away with what they're offered. And in many cases, that actually does happen. A lot of people uh, accept what lower than what, what they should have just because they want to get on with their lives.
4: What about non-payment of wages in general? What are you seeing in terms of the rate of cases and the trend there?
8: We haven't seen much of that. Um, and where we've seen it, it's been cases where the company is in serious trouble anyway. It's not a choice by the employer. The employer is really struggling. And uh, although employees do have sort of front of the queue status when it comes to being a creditor, um, the only cases we see are cases where the company is in trouble.
4: And what kind of time frame are we normally looking at when it does go through the courts for for these kind of cases, gratuities, wages to be resolved?
8: Uh, Very often, if it's an average time, I'd say six months, which is a very long time and probably partly to do with a backlog. And if that is lifted, uh, that would be uh, a huge thing for employees to get the, the end-of-service payment much earlier and without, with, with less hassle.
4: Indeed. Right, that is the lawyer Jim Berry, the managing partner of James Berry and Associate Legal Partners speaking to us about that new decree, uh, which will allow the Ministry of Human Resources and Emiratization to make binding decisions on those smaller cases. Thank you very much for your time this Thank morning. You.
0: This is the Bite-Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on Dubaii1038.com.